Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. Today we are joined by Simon Hilborn, a marine biologist, ocean conservationist, and research officer at Manta Trust. So thanks, mate, for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No dramas. Alrighty. So today's episode is going to be focused around all things manta rays, ranging from threats, conservation actions, sustainable tourism, manta research, and heaps of other cool stuff. But before we dive into that, can you please introduce yourself to the podcast? Sure. So yeah, my name is Simon. Um, I'm a marine biologist and ocean conservationist and also um, an underwater photographer. So what inspired you to kind of get into the space, you know, marine biology and underwater photography? So I had like a, a bit of an unusual upbringing. I, I went to high school in Thailand um, from 11 to 18 years old. And that's where I learned to scuba dive. Both my parents were sort of recreational fun divers and, and I sort of learned from that. Um, carried on diving, did my all my courses up to sort of dive master just as I turned 18 um, and then instructor's course shortly after. Um, but it became pretty clear to me, like I loved teaching people, but I was much more interested in the, uh, the wildlife, the animals and the, the corals and stuff like that, rather than the tourism side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to university in Southampton, studied marine biology, um, but having sort of lived and dived in the tropics for a good chunk of my life, um, four years at uni in, in England, I was just couldn't wait to get back out to the tropics and, uh, do something in warm water rather than studying limpets in the in the Solent River. Alrighty, so on your Instagram page, I see you're a, a researcher at Manta Trust. So, what kind of work are you doing there? I've actually I've left the research officer position in the Maldives now for about a year. I've actually taken over the role as digital media and communications um, for the sort of wider charity. Um, so before that, I was yeah I was in charge of some of the research aspects of what we're doing in our Maldives project. Um, but now I work with kind of more of our affiliate projects around the world doing um, yeah, digital communication side of things. But I also do still manage the oceanic manta population. So there are two species of mantas, which I'll mention later. Um, and most of our research in the Maldives is on the reef mantas. Um, but I, in the last couple of years, we sort of set up this project studying the oceanic mantas, the bigger ones, um, and I kind of run that. So. I'll be heading back out to the Maldives in in a week or so for a couple of months, um, and that will be my sort of focus for for those two months, um, researching that population. You mentioned before two species of manta rays. What are they called, and kind of what is their conservation status at the moment? Uh, Sure. So I think it was only in 2009 that the the sort of manta ray was split into two species. Um, There's the reef manta ray, which, as the name suggests, kind of spends more of its time on shallow coral reefs. It's quite often what people see when they go out diving with or snorkeling with mantas. Um, And then there's the larger cousin, the oceanic manta, um, which, as its name suggests, spends more of its time out in open ocean and in sort of pelagic waters. But both those species, they were recently sort of put back into or put into the Mobilidae family. So they're in the same classification and group, same genus as all the other 
uh, devil rays, the smaller mobular rays. So technically they're all mobulars now, um, but the sort of common name of, of manta is still perfectly valid. There is also a potential third species of manta over in the Caribbean. It's really cool. On the underside, it looks like an oceanic manta. And on the top side, the dorsal side, it looks a lot more like a reef manta. So it's it's kind of like a half-half between the two. Um, but there's not much consensus on whether or not it is different enough genetically and sort of um, phenotypic expression to classify it as a separate third species um, so at the moment it's it's just the two species um, and yeah they're both listed as as vulnerable on the IUCN red list uh, with what is considered sort of declining populations so they're vulnerable to extinction and their populations seem to be on on the downward slope okay so you mentioned that they're both vulnerable so they're both threatened with extinction so what are yeah. the major threats to both those species um, by far the biggest threat to mantas and also their sort of devil ray cousins, the mobular rays, is from fisheries. Um, there are a few places around the world that sort of actively hunt and target mobulars and manta rays. Uh, it is kind of, there's some small areas around the world. It's starting to move away from that. National legislation and, and protection is starting to make those targeted fisheries illegal, basically. Um, but we do still see it around the world. Um, but probably one of the or even bigger threat to to them than than the sort of targeted fisheries of fishermen going out at sea, actually thinking, right, I'm going to go try and kill as many mantas or mobblers as I can. It's actually the bycatch fisheries. So it's the tuna fishing fleets that are using nets. Um, they're going out, right, I'm going to try and catch as many tuna as I can. But accidentally, they catch lots of mobular rays and mantas. Um, and they bring them back to shore because they are valuable. Um, so it's it's sort of not the targeted species that they're after. Um, it's resulting from from bycatch. And yeah, much, much of this happens kind of out in the open oceans where industrial sized fishing boats are operating. Um, but also it can happen in in much more coastal regions as well. Okay, so you'd say the the two main ones, I guess, are the targeted fishing and then the bycatch. Yeah, exactly. So the the targeted fishing, what are they actually getting from the manta ray? Like, what are they? What's the purpose? Um, so in both cases, I mean, the end goal for most of it is uh, the gill plates. So it's the piece of the manta inside the the five pairs of gill slits that the manta uses to basically filter out the water and and to channel the plankton. Uh, which they're filter feeding out from the water column and sort of push that down into into the stomach to feed. So it's they're effectively filter feeding, um, and that those gill plates are removed from the manta, um, dried out, and then exported to southern Asia, where they're used as a, a like a pseudo remedy, like a fake um, medicinal cure. Um, the kind of thinking is. Uh, okay, so these gill plates in the manta, they filter the water, they keep all the good stuff in the manta and all the negative stuff passes out. If I eat the gill plates, the same thing will happen with me. Um, all the sort of good energy and the good nutrients and stuff will stay inside me, but it will cleanse me and it will uh, purify my body and all the waste stuff will sort of pass away. Um, obviously, there's no sort of scientific value to that. Um, and it's a hugely uh, wasteful sort of industry because they're only after these small sections of the manta. Um, around the world, people do eat mobular and manta meat, but it's not really a delicacy anywhere. It's not very valuable. It's not, it doesn't fetch a high price in the market or anything. Okay. So that target of fishing, that main thing is those, those gill plates. 
which are used for, I guess, traditional medicine, which isn't proven by science kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the bycatch fishery as well, when they catch them accidentally, they sort of think, well, I'm, I can take this back to port and I can make money off the gill plates. So they keep the the mantle mobile on board rather than trying to release it back into the water. Yeah. Um, and just quickly, you mentioned that it's sort of traditional medicine. It That's kind of what it's marketed as. But um, if you apparently if you go back in the old sort of Chinese traditional uh, medicine literature, there's no mention of uh, gill plates. So it's not really a traditional medicine. It's kind of a new thing that they, the industry has invented um, and basically just trying to market it really heavily and, and make profit Ooh. from. Okay, so it's a marketing thing. It's a deceiving marketing ploy. So it's not even traditional um, Chinese medicine or traditional medicine that has been in ancient books. It's a marketing ploy where some people have seen an opportunity to make a quick buck. Yeah, exactly. So things like gil, uh, sorry, shark fins have been around for a lot longer. I don't think it's, I don't think anyone can really uh, support the shark fin industry saying that it's a, a traditional practice that, that we have the right to sort of rely on when it's destroying this many sharks around the world. Um, but in the case of the gill plates, yeah, it's not in that ancient literature. So it's, uh, it's much of a new yeah. industry. Uh, and just quickly on the second threat, so the bycatch, you mentioned that tuna is kind of the targeted fish and then these manta rays unfortunately get caught up in that mm. is that the main fish the tuna that the manta rays get caught up in i think it, it a lot of it does come down to the tuna and partially that's because of uh where tuna and mantas slash mobulars uh live they they live in similar sort of um waters in similar temperature waters so uh, fishing boats in up in the Arctic or in the Antarctic, they're not going to be catching mantas accidentally because, well, the mantas just don't live there. So um, it's these sort of tropical, subtropical tuna fishing fleets um, act, oh, acting in the open ocean, especially when they're using nets. So things like gill nets and uh, Persian nets, that's when the mantas get entangled and caught up in, in, the, in, the, yeah, in the nets that they're using for, for tuna. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk about your recent campaign called Fish Free February that you launched with Ocean Festival UK? Yeah, sure. So this um, this campaign came up when I was sort of going around fish markets of Southern Asia, um, and I'd been diving for sort of ten or fifteen years and and seeing some sharks. Um, but I went to these fish markets and I saw way more sharks, way more numbers of sharks and different species um, than I'd ever seen in the wild. And yeah, granted, a lot of these species are pelagic, um, so not shark species that you would kind of expect to see diving on a coral reef. Um, but nevertheless, it, nevertheless, it, it still kind of it really alarmed me, and it kind of blew my mind how many different shark and prey species were were being caught and landed by um, these fishing fleets around Southern Asia. Um, and that kind of just got me thinking about the whole fishing industry and 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 some of the issues with it um and yeah i think just around the world like climate change and conservation is is becoming an increasingly mainstream topic of discussion uh veganism reducing meat consumption dairy consumption and protecting the rainforest from that and stuff um but i just felt that fish and the oceans were kind of being left out of the picture a little bit um everyone talks about red meat and beef being being really bad for the environment and I, i've even heard some people sort of say oh, yeah i don't eat meat anymore um i just eat fish it's much healthier it's much better for me um and it's like well hang on uh, the 
the oceans are also under huge threat. They're being uh, exploited yeah, and destroyed. That, that is an interesting thing. A lot of people just don't consider fish or a lot of marine life as, as animals. It's strange. Yeah, um, it, it, is, it is odd. I mean, I think when people think about protecting the oceans, they think about uh, the pretty stuff, the dolphins, the turtles, the whales, um, the coral reefs and things like that. Um, but these oceans are, are huge and they're so interlinked and, and what happens productivity wise in one area of the, of the oceans uh, that circulates around and it affects all the rest of the sort of oceans. So completely wiping out populations in uh, the North Sea or the, in, in the Atlantic Ocean can have detrimental impacts further around when circulations and stuff don't bring the same productivity and same nutrients to to other regions of the ocean. So. I think it's uh, a little bit ridiculous to to kind of think about ocean conservation and protecting the oceans and just think about the pretty things. So Fish Free February, on your website in the About section, it says not all fishing is bad, but yet it's a fish free campaign. So can you elaborate on what you mean by not all fishing is bad? Sure. So what we are trying to raise awareness about is uh, some of the major issues with the large-scale industrial fisheries, so uh, things like overfishing, so fishing boats that go out and just catch way too much of a of a population that is already uh, heavily fished and overexploited. Uh, the issues of bycatch, so all these extra animals being caught up in in nets and stuff. Um, things like uh, bottom trawling along the along the seafloor to get all the um, sort of flatfish and, and shrimps and stuff like that it just destroys the the entire ecosystem and it's it's hugely detrimental for catching only one or two sort of commercially valuable species uh again the issue of plastics in the ocean so uh another huge topic everyone talking about oh don't use plastic straws because they get stuck in sort of turtles noses and don't use plastic bags because they look like jellyfish and get confused um and i mean i'm completely against useless plastic i absolutely hate plastic um and i think everyone should reduce it but i think talking about marine conservation and saving the ocean and talking about plastic bags and straws i think people are missing the point and the big issue here um which in my mind is, is the fishing industries um so yeah i mean catching fish like pole and line fisheries uh it's very selective you kind of know what fish you're catching you're catching one at a time I, I don't really see much of an issue with that. Um, spear fishermen as well, where they go out and they catch, they see the fish that they want, they catch that fish and, and that's their protein. Um, I don't really see much of a of an issue with that. Um, but the idea of Fishery February is kind of just to get people to stop eating seafood for this one month for February and use that as kind of a catalyst to start the conversation about these issues um, and to get people to to think a bit more about it. Um, obviously, people are thinking about beef and, and reducing that consumption. Um, it would be nice to see the same sort of thing happening with seafood as well. Yeah, we want to be creating this content, creating these campaigns to just spark the conversation. Like yeah. if the idea is to change someone's opinion or change uh, an action, you, it all begins with, I guess, that conversation. Like how, you, how do you expect someone to change what they're doing without giving them inf information and then creating a conversation around it? You know, nothing's yeah, going to happen exactly. unless that happens first. So, yeah, I, I love that campaign. Um, I'm just looking at your website now. Um, interesting thing that I see here is it mentions a big problem with commercial fisheries is the mislabeling of species. 
Mm. So why is that a, a, a problem, I guess? Um, it just leads to uh, uh, fishing industries being able to get away with catching either uh, endangered or vulnerable species or using fishing methods that aren't sustainable, um, but then repackaging it up and putting a, either a a mislabeled sort of uh, fishing practice, so like sustainably caught or something like that, or just um, putting the wrong label of the wrong species, so putting down a label of, of a of a fish that is is plentiful and has large stocks and putting that on the label rather than what it actually is. So it, it just it opens the door to a lot of covering up of, of what's actually going on and and how can we kind of monitor fish stocks and populations and, and things like that if if what's being sold in the supermarket and what we're buying as consumers isn't actually what is on the package. And uh, I think it's quite easy because if you buy a fish fillet or you go to a restaurant and you buy a, a fish seafood dish, I mean, people, are, you can't tell whether that's like exactly what species of fish it is once it's been cooked and breaded and crumbed and, and has a, a, a sauce on top of it. Like you just wouldn't be able to say exactly what kind of seafood it is. So you need to, you need to have faith and trust the mm -hmm. supermarket or the restaurant that they're, they are actually labeling it correctly. Um, and there's been some, some pretty scary statistics about, um, taking sort of genetic samples from fish in markets and comparing it to what they say on the label. And, and it's quite alarming numbers of how many are, are not actually what they're being sold as. Yeah. So it seems like a lot of these companies are kind of taking advantage of some loopholes in the system and just kind of, if they, yeah. they identify a loophole and they just take advantage of it. Um, so considering yeah. some of these threats that we've been talking about, what are some of the major roadblocks for addressing some of these impacts of fisheries? I think a lot of it boils down to just a lack of um, knowledge from the scientific point of view, from the, uh, from the scientists effectively. We just don't know enough about the oceans and what's going on and these populations and these species. Um, I mean, we don't know how, how many manta rays are there in the world. We just don't really know. So it's hard to say whether populations in certain areas are going up or down. Um, I mean, we can tell from the fact that the fishermen are catching less and less of these mantas and mobblers that indicates that the population is going down, but uh, we don't have any kind of baseline data. Um, we don't really know where mantas and mobblers live outside of the, the reef mantas. We don't know where they migrate to, how far they go, uh, what areas they use for breeding or reproduction or pupping grounds or anything like that. Um, and again, without that knowledge, it's really hard to implement sort of good conservation management and strategies and um, restricting fisheries from certain areas because this is a hotspot for manta ray aggregation or mobular spawning area or, or uh, not spawning, um, pupping area. But without that kind of baseline knowledge, we can't really uh, start to advise the management strategies and stuff. And we don't really know how many mobilers or mantas are, are even being caught often. Um, the reporting of catches is really, really poor. Um, for a lot of fishing fleets around the world, they only need to record, um, it, it goes down as like ray for manta, for mobula, for eagle ray, for different types of stingrays, for, for all of these different species, it just gets noted down as ray and how many rays there were. Um, okay. And in terms of, conservation of, of individual species uh, that's just not good enough data to really to really be working with um, 
so I think that's the the kind of major roadblock for for addressing the issues of of these fisheries. We just don't know enough about them at the moment, and all the time that we're we're spending trying to research and collect more and more data, the fishing boats are still out there catching uh, the species in sort of high numbers. So it's yeah. a bit of a race against time. It kind of probably answers my next question, which is what are some of the conservation actions that are needed to protect manta rays? So. Yeah, like you mentioned, it's hard to, I guess, come up with a well thought out and effective action strategy over the long term if there is no foundation of, of research. So are there conservation actions that are kind of really critical at the moment other than like research? Yeah, uh, for sure. And there's there's some good steps already being taken. A couple of the um, large fishing, tuna fishing bodies around the world um, they've started to put in implementations to uh, basically ban catching mobulars and mantas um, and given advice on how to, if they do get, if they do catch them and entangle them or whatever, there's uh, regulations as to how they should go about releasing them. So you can't, um, you shouldn't pick the mantas up or the mobulars up by the gills, don't gaff them, don't put holes in their wings to, to try and lift them back off the boat try to release them as sort of carefully and calmly as possible is all pretty, pretty obvious stuff, but, um, kind of banning is now illegal in some of these areas to, to catch and keep, uh, on the boat. So they do need to be released as soon as possible back into the water. Um, and that goes a long way. Um, but then, I mean, that raises another issue. We don't even know if they are released, how, how well they survive. We don't know about mortality rates, um, a study in, in New Zealand, I think released seven or eight uh, mobile rays after being caught in fishing nets, put survival tags on them. And I think half of them died within three or four days. So wow. although you've released it alive, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to survive and, and is fine. Um, yeah. But yeah, so a lot more research, um, but also the research we have done already indicates some areas that are important for mantas and mobulars. So we need to start seeing protected areas coming into effect um, and not just small little protected areas like large scale uh, marine protected areas over big areas, uh, these migratory species. And there needs to be regulation and enforcement and monitoring of these protected areas. Otherwise, there's just no point um, putting a little name on it saying this is a marine protected area. It just doesn't really mean anything. Um, one thing that I'm seeing an increase in, especially on social media and from people that I've spoken to who have been traveling around the world is manta tourism. So people swimming with manta rays seems to be on the upward trend. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? And does it have a role in conserving mantas over the long term? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. It's, it's becoming more and more popular. They're such beautiful, graceful animals. They're completely harmless. Um, yeah, very beautiful, charismatic. Uh, somewhat intelligent species so everyone kind of wants to to see them um and that's driving ecotourism or, or tourism in the marine world which can be a good thing but it comes with a lot of uh its own issues and and potential problems um i think getting people in the water is really important showing them these these marine animals getting them excited about it and um inspiring them to want to sort of conserve them and mantas are, are a great species because because they are so charismatic and sort of beautiful and, and people can really fall in love with them. Um, for people who don't 
know or have too much connection with the ocean that offers like a really good kind of gateway into marine conservation if you see a, if you don't know anything about the the marine world or whatever and you see a manta and you kind of fall in love with it that's going to inspire you to want to protect a bit more of the ocean and, and where the manta lives and the other species that it interacts with and, and things like that um in a lot more so than say seeing a lower a tuna yeah, or a, or a salmon mean, like that, that you can't really connect with um so yeah i think they're really important but yeah ecotourism <clears throat> uh, does need to be managed it needs to be done in a sustainable way um i work in the maldives and it's becoming uh, i mean it's it's already one of the biggest destinations in the world to swim with mantas but there's just it's not feasible for every single tourist in the maldives to swim with a manta um it just the, the numbers don't add up would be completely unsustainable so there needs to be ways of managing it putting in restrictions boat numbers um tourist numbers and stuff like that all right so that segues to the next question um, which is given the growing popularity of manta tourism how can we swim with mantas in a way that is ethical responsible and sustainable yeah so this sort of sustainable responsible tourism that comes down to people at, at different levels so as an individual you've got a responsibility to follow the guidelines uh, manta trust has put together a whole how to swim with mantas sort of code of conduct which is freely available online uh, it's a fantastic little multimedia kit in multiple languages as well um the key sort of take-home messages don't get too close with the boat get in the water nice and slowly uh, stay calm in the water don't get too close to mantas we asked about three meters if the manta comes closer, that's fine, but but don't sort of chase after them. Um, and obviously don't touch the mantas. And that's kind of what people on a tourism level can do. But there also has to be responsibility from tourism operators. So if you go to a dive site and there's already six or seven boats there and loads of people diving on the cleaning station or snorkeling, maybe hold off for a bit, hold off for 10 or 15 minutes, wait until one or two boats get out and then get in. Um, or choose a different area, go try and find mantas in a slightly different area. Um, and then it also comes from government level. So they need to be putting in boat restrictions on how many boats and divers can be at certain areas, especially cleaning stations, which are very small sites, very important for mantas. Um, they can very easily be overcrowded. We've got dive sites in the Maldives with over 100, 150 divers on them at once. And it's just, it's ridiculous. Um, just doesn't really work. Yeah, so yeah, that's an issue because when you're talking about mantas as being this animal where like if you see it for the first time, you're kind of starstruck. Like I had that same experience when I first um, saw a manta ray in Komodo um, National mm -hmm. Park a few years ago. They are just so majestic. You just look at them and like before that moment, I never like I've, I've got like an arbitrary like top three favorite animals and that wasn't even near the top three. But since yeah. that swim, it kind of just bumped up and I, I don't know what it is. I guess it's a combination of their size and just how, considering their size, how graceful they seem to be. Like they, yeah. just, they just glide through the water. Yeah, and they're just completely silent. They kind just of creep silent. up behind you. Yeah. So, they know exactly where they are. They can hold their position so well. Yeah, they are incredible animals to be in the water with. Yeah, so that obviously offers a provides an opportunity from an ecotourism point of view because a lot of people would love to have that experience. And then from a conservation point of view, more people that have that experience may then in turn want to help protect them. If, you know, 
where and and if they can. But then the balance yep. of that is because ecotourism is a business, some people try and um, I guess cut some corners in order to make an extra dollar. So it is it is yeah. that balancing act. But I personally am a big believer in ecotourism when done right, but yeah, hi- highlighted on the done right part. Um, yeah. So that that is the challenge. Um, but yeah, yeah that- it's a fine balance between between getting people engaged and in the water and seeing it and and instilling that sort of desire to protect them, 100%. but not going too far and sort of overcrowding and and just making it. It does make it an enjoyable experience for people as well. I mean, you want your everyone wants their man to encounter to be with as few other people in the water as possible. You've got a hundred people around you. It doesn't make it much fun. Yeah, but then that kind of raises another question of some people want these experiences just so that they can get a photo. So yeah. you can you can be in a group of say two hundred people and that experience has come kind of compromised somewhat because you're with so many people. But if you can get that photo where it's, it looks like it's just you and the mantle without, you know, no one else on Instagram realizes that there's 199 other people with you, some people would take that option if it means that they save $300. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's my love hate relationship with social media and how. Yep, uh, yep, yep, yep. I'm definitely with you on that one. See, see an incredible photo and want to replicate it, and that's all. They're, they're not really interested in the the biology or the conservation side of things. They yeah. just want um, that snapshot. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about kind of the threats and potential solutions, but in your opinion, why is it important to protect manta rays in the first place? I think the fact that they're they are a species is kind of should be reason enough to to not wipe them off the face of the earth like they're they're here why 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 should they be uh made extinct kind of thing um but they like i mentioned they've got this kind of um ability to get people engaged and and um yeah involved in in marine conservation in the ocean that other species can't do so i think they're really pivotal species in in protecting especially tropical coral reefs. Um, they're kind of like a keystone species. If we can get people engaged and involved and want to protect manta rays, it makes it a lot easier to get people involved and want to protect coral reefs or the open oceans and stuff like that. Um, so I think they they have a really important position there from a conservation standpoint. Okay. All right. So we're nearing the end of the podcast. Um, so how can people connect with you online? Either through the Manta Trust, um, if you get in contact with Mantras through Facebook, Instagram, or the website, um, you can quite easily get through to me. Uh, just mention Simon or whatever. Um, it will often come back to me. Um, or through the Fishery February uh, campaign as well on Instagram and Facebook. Um, or directly with me on Instagram as well. S.Hillborn, I think I am. Right, yeah. That will be all on in the caption in the show notes. And to the final segment of the podcast... What words do you want to leave the listeners to the conservation tribe? So, yeah, I'd just like to kind of put out a little challenge to all the listeners. Next time you go to the to the shop, if you pick up your sort of favorite seafood item, whatever it is, um, and just flip it over, whether it's tin tuna, smoked salmon, prawns, whatever it is, flip over the pack, have a little read, um, try and find the section about how it was fished and where it was fished from. Um, I know in the UK, it will say something like FAO 34. So that's the region of the oceans that it was caught in. Um, and it will give like trawl net or something like that as to the method of, of fishing. 
take a little photo of that, go home and uh, do some reading, uh, find out where that site is, see how far that fish has, has flown to get to your supermarket or to your plate, um, and have a little read about the fishing methods, um, watch some YouTube videos or whatever, find out a bit more about whatever fishing practice that was, whether it says long lining, have a little read about the issues with long lining, trawl nets, skill nets, perseen nets, whatever it is. Um, and yeah, hopefully that will trigger some sort of conversations and, and some questions in your head as to whether that was really a sustainable purchase or not. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.